Welcome to the broadcast. Every Arizona homeowner's best friend. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. Is the life for me. Come on around back, Arizona. It is Saturday morning, the fourth Saturday of the month. We're the outdoor living hour. It means we're talking with Farmer Greg, and we've got him on Zoom here. As we learned last week, he has moved to North Carolina, but through the modern technology, he's able to still be here with us virtually. And uh, and I am just going to let you introduce your guest. I'm so excited who you have lined up. Uh, listeners have heard this name mentioned many, many times, especially when uh, the water, the topic of water comes up, which is our talking point today, prevent water waste, or, you know, we might be more repurposing water use or, you know, rainwater harvesting. I'll let you take it from here. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. So today we have Brad Lancaster with us, and I've been trying to figure out how we can get him on the show for the past three or four years. So I'm very excited. Brad is the author of the award-winning Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond and co-founder of Neighborhood Foresters. Since 1993, Brad has run a successful permaculture education design and consultation business focused on integrated regenerative approaches to landscape design, planning, and living. Welcome, Brad. Thanks. Great to be here. I am so excited. So where do you want to start, Brad? I'm just going to toss it to you. Well, I'll ask this. Where'd you Please. get started with your interest in, in water harvesting? Are you uh, native to Tucson? Uh, did you move there and think, man, this is there's got to be a better way? Or is it just observations growing up like uh, many of us that, that you know are residents of the desert? Yeah, no, I, I grew up here. So th- this is my home. And uh, so as a kid, uh, every time the storms would roll in, I'd get super excited. And uh, as the rain came down, I'd run into the arroyos. And I'd just be playing like crazy, you know, playing flood and whatnot and, and relishing it. Um, so I developed a, a love of um, the abundance of the rain that we actually do have. Um, and then as I got older, I realized, wow, you know, you can, you can do way more than just play in this stuff. You can actually make this this joyous, wondrous water linger so much longer into the dry season that we can shrink our droughts. And uh, we can we can make abundance where there's a perceived scarcity. When you have a particular property in Tucson uh, that you harvest a lot of water on, that's a lot greener than the surrounding areas. Tell us about that. Yeah. So uh, my brother and I, um, we we grew up on the northern edge of Tucson as kids, and then we moved um, just to the northern edge of downtown Tucson in the center of town uh, in 1994, and we bought this rundown property. And uh, fantastic neighborhood, you know, pedestrian oriented, but um, it had been forgotten um, for a number of years. And the streets were just like these barren solar ovens. There were uh, very few trees. Um, it uh, you did not want to be outside uh, in the summer months because it was so excruciatingly hot. And uh, well, while we loved our neighbors, we didn't love the oven. So we wanted to turn that around and we wanted to actually bring the desert that we played in as kids into the urban core. So what we did is we started this annual uh, rain and tree planting program 
where uh, we worked with our neighbors and uh, we first plant the rain by creating these simple water harvesting basins. Instead of planting on mounds, which you so often see from which the water drains away and is wasted, we wanted to plant that rain before we planted the plants. Why? So we could water them for free. <laughs> okay, so instead right. of being dependent on municipal water to water your plants and increase your water bill, how could you actually reduce your water bill, reduce flooding, and enhance the health of your plants at the same time? And we found that um, maybe you guys have done this. If you like water your house plants with uh, rainwater, you'll find they just, they pop. They do so much better than if you water a city water. Because the rainwater doesn't have the salts, which are toxic to both the plants and to soil life. Rainwater is salt free. What's more, it has free fertilizer. Fantastic little fact here. You know when we get our lightning storms with the monsoons? Um, it uh, takes atmospheric nitrogen, which is in a form that plants can't use. You know, you hear the plants love nitrogen, but they can't use that, um, the nitrogen that's in our, in our air. Um, but when there's a lightning storm, there's a chemical reaction that changes that nitrogen from a form that plants cannot use to a form they can use, and the raindrops brings that nitrogen that the plants can use right to the plants. We Isn't had, that amazing? We had just yeah. mentioned last Saturday with Jay Harper that two inches of rainwater will do so much more pl- for a plant than two inches of municipal water. We didn't go into the reason why, but this is exactly, you know, that reason. Yeah. <laughs> this is it. This is I the have, living water, <laughs> the sweet I had a water. Friend, I had a friend of mine a few years ago uh, tell me that. And it was like, what are you talking about? And I did a little research and it was like, whoa, blew my mind. Literally lightning. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's it. Yeah, exactly. So one of the things that you have done a lot with, Brad, on your property is street runoff. Yes. Yeah. And uh, so, well, here, let, let me let me elaborate a little bit more that also elaborates on the question you asked me earlier. So on this uh, this eighth of an acre lot that we my brother and I bought on the northern edge of downtown Tucson, um, we started to reverse the topography. So instead of having it mounded and draining to the street, we reverse things. So it was more like bowl shapes that would hold and infiltrate the rain when it came. And uh, and then we directed street runoff from the street into street side basins that were lower than the street in which we planted street trees so that we would use the street runoff to irrigate the street trees for free. Okay, street irrigates the street trees um, and reduces downstream flooding. So uh, by doing all these strategies, we now harvest uh, 100,000 gallons of rainwater per year on this small eighth of an acre lot and the surrounding public right-of-way. Okay, that's all free water. We're getting 100,000 gallons of free water every year. Wow. Um, that is That just makes the, the landscape flourish. So, um, and, you know, we didn't want to do this in a hoarding way. We wanted to do this in a way that also enabled our neighbors to have just as much of abundance. So we were showing them all along how they can do this too. And it's not just capturing rain and street runoff, and maybe we can talk about this a little bit more later, is uh, we're also using our so-called wastewater, you know, your lightly used water that goes down the drain, what some people call gray water. We, uh, um, we don't send that to the sewer. Instead, we redirect the water from the drains of our sink, showers, bathtub, and laundry 
to the landscape as opposed to the sewer. We've already paid for that water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so let's let's use it again. And uh, let's use it in a way that the soil life and the plants actually filter out the soaps and whatnot. And uh, so this way, even when there's no rain, these same rain gardens, these same basin shapes that we create, they're capturing gray water. So the rain garden becomes a gray water garden in times of no rain. And uh, so this way, um, we dropped our water bill so much that the, t- the Tucson Water Department came out to see if our meter was broken. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Really? That's- that's a definition of success right there when the utility wow. company wants to know if their meter's broken. <laughs> <laughs> and then we said, no, no, everything's good. Hey, let us show you what we're doing. And, and they, got, they got pretty excited. So, yeah. And uh, so we, um, we've worked with uh, the city in a number of ways. So uh, when we were originally harvesting the water off the street, um, th- it wasn't yet legal to do what we were doing. Okay, it's it's what I like to call pre-legal. Okay, (laughs) Um, because uh, what we were doing is we were directing water off the street into the street side plantings. And where we started the work, it was it was fine. We did it where there was an existing dip in the curb, you know, where there had once been a driveway. But when we wanted to expand the system, there was no dip in the curb. So we had to cut the curb so that there was an inlet point from which the water could leave the street and enter the street side basins. That cutting of the curb back in the day, that was pre-legal, okay? So we did it on a Sunday when no one from the city was watching. Uh, We started small, we worked out the kinks, um, got it working really great, and then when the neighbors saw how well it worked, they got super excited, they wanted to do likewise, and then we approached the city and said, hey, could we legalize this practice? And it took a it took a couple of years working with the city, but it's now legalized. It's mandated in new city road construction, and really? it's incentivized with up to a two thousand dollar rebate. And so, before anyone just starts randomly go and taking their concrete cutter and going <laughs> to their curves, there's still a process ahead of this we need to follow. Correct. No, there's absolutely a process. You you need to get a permit to do this because the whole point is we want to improve public infrastructure, not make it worse. Mm-hmm. And if you just jump in not knowing what you're doing, you could basically vandalize the public right away. So um, there's just some super simple approaches. I, I lay out all the details in my books on how you do this. And um, the other key thing is you need to make sure you get your elevations right so you don't accidentally direct water into your or your neighbor's property in a way that would cause flooding. It's super easy to avoid the flooding as long as you're following the right steps. And uh, the other key thing is you want to make sure you're not creating mosquito farms. So uh, it's essential that you create basins that are very spongy. They're full of organic matter, soil life, and plants, which act as living pumps. So we never have water puddling for more than 12 hours, okay? Um, We typically have all the water infiltrate within an hour. So um, we're storing the water subsurface, not on the surface. Mm -hmm. So the mosquito eggs can't go from egg to adult. And by storing it subsurface, we lose far less of it to evaporation. And then we utilize the living pump action of the vegetation to draw it up into its roots and its canopy and its fruit to give you shade, shelter, and so much more. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
We could yeah. do a lot here at Rosie on the House, but we can't stop the clock. Stay tuned. We're just getting started. <laughs> it is our Urban Farm Hour. Farmer Greg is joining us online, along with the water renegade from Tucson, Arizona, Mr. Brad Lancaster, the author of Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond. This is the sound of rushing water. Thanks for sticking with us. I'm going to turn it right back over to Farmer Greg and Brad Lancaster. Y'all had put a plan together during the break on where to follow up from that last segment that I thought was perfectly. So take it away. All right. Well, one of the things that's important is the way we actually design these base, these roadway basins so that you don't create a flow through. Can you say a little bit about that, Brad? Yeah, so um, I like to create systems that are as low maintenance as possible, okay, um, and that actually get better over time, not worse. So um, if we created streetside basins through which water flowed and then exited on the downslope side, um, there's a chance that it would take mulch organic matter away with it. It would take material out of the system, um, might even cause some erosion. So I like to create what I call backwater or eddy basins. And uh, so these basically have one opening at the highest part of the basin. So uh, water comes in. Once it fills the basin, the water backs up to that original inlet so it's not a flow through system. It's like a, a backup system. Okay. And then once the water backs up to the inlet, then the water continues to flow down the street gutter as it did before where everything's good and stable. And then it goes to the next basin downstream. Um, and this way you don't lose any mulch. In fact, you gain mulch. You'll, you gain mm -hmm. organic matter because mm -hmm. the, uh, the leaf drop that's been falling on the street, that comes into your basin along with the runoff. So it's like a net gain of not just uh, water, but also organic matter, nutrients and all kinds of great stuff. Now, some people, when they hear that, they might be thinking, yeah, but what about the toxins coming off the road? You know, what if my car has been dripping oil? Well, the great thing is this vegetation uh, is not affected in any negative way uh, by those uh, those car drippings. Um, and uh, um, the, the only thing I might be concerned about or that I would be concerned about is um, growing annual food crops uh, that might be getting that stormwater runoff. So right. I don't grow my corn, beans, and squash in these street side basins. Okay. Instead I'm growing woody perennial plants. Like I'm in the Southern Arizona. So it's uh, velvet mesquite trees with their edible pods, the desert ironwood, the foothills Palo Verde with their edible seeds and flowers. Um, there's no toxins uptaken in those reproductive parts. So it's not a problem. Um, whereas if I was growing leafy greens, like for a salad, uh, there's a possibility that heavy metals would be uptaken by that. So that I don't grow along the street. Instead, I grow that in my yard using roof runoff because no cars are parking on my roof and <laughs> there's no dogs crapping on my roof either. So I've got really good, uh, quality water going to my vegetable garden. Okay. okay. And Excellent. so the droppings that would be up there on the roof are the birds, and they've got the same opportunity to drop those droppings right onto your garden as opposed to roof runoff. <laughs> uh, they do. And here's a great thing about the uh, that, too. So um, you can have all kinds of different roofing materials, but I prefer metal because it, it actually solar cooks those bird droppings. Um, and then the other mm -hmm. thing, uh, you know, whatever your roof surface is, uh, I... Um, I clean my gutters before the first big rain, okay? And um, if you got a flat roof, really easy to get up there and sweep it um, beforehand. 
So I'm actually eliminating a lot of that organic debris before the rain uh, even hits the surface. And then the other thing I do, um, and I go into more information on this in my uh, Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond books, is uh, I have a little first flush diverter. So the first flush of water coming off the roof, um, I, I divert that away from my tanks. So um, That goes I'm back getting, to your street basin or other use? It uh, goes to other basins, other basins that have woody perennials in the landscape. Yeah, Cool. Do so with- do you have to manually change that first or does – uh, do you have some kind of weighted system where after a certain amount of gallons hit, it, you know, uh, the the lever drops and it, the water diverts to the other side? <laughs> um, I, I definitely have friends that have those kind of chitty chitty bang bang setups, and um, <laughs> yes. but and and they're great to watch. Um, but uh, I just have a real simple thing where I've got a little screw cap at the end of uh, it's like a dog leg piece of pipe. It's right by a plant that whose fruit I love, and so I want it to get some some uh, some poop juice because uh, you know that burb poop juice coming off in the first flush. It's very fertile water. Don't want it in my tank. Don't want it in my body. But my fruiting cactus loves it, so I direct it to that, and then um, then I just put the screw cap back on after I've drained that first flush. Cool. Nice. I want I want to bust a myth before we go into the next break, and that is is rainwater and graywater harvesting legal in the state of Arizona? I get that question a lot. Yeah, rainwater harvesting is legal, and so is graywater harvesting statewide. Um, but here's a key thing I want to say about graywater. Don't um, I really don't think you should be putting graywater in tanks? It's possible, but it makes it a much more mm-hmm. complex, harder to maintain and potentially stinky system. So um, rainwater is great in tanks. Uh, Gray water, keep it out of tanks. And Um, the gray water, if you did do it in tanks, it's going to require additional cleaning. Additional cleaning is going to require more water. And what we're trying to do is recycle our water, repurpose our water, not find ways to reuse water continuously. Exactly. So instead, just direct that gray water to your rain gardens. Okay, they're already set up to take whatever water you give them. And that the plant life and the soil life will for, uh, filter all for free. And when we come back from the break, I want to talk about why I don't like to use tanks as a first flush, as a first, you know, a first step. Okay. Well, very good. And Brad was talking about all his tanks. So, I mean, do we need some virtual boxing gloves for the next segment? <laughs> right. Get, get, get the bell dinger ready for the, for the next round, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> Round two coming up. It's Rosie on the house with you every Saturday morning. We've got Farmer Greg and Brad Brad Lancaster right here. You know, we get asked all the time, Farmer Greg, what are we going to do about water? What are we going to do about water? What are we going to do about water? Mm-hmm. Well, get your pen out and take notes if you haven't already, because this is one yeah. thing every one of us can do that's just going to help uh, extend uh, our, the water that we do receive and put less strain on our water systems and our riverways that come down. You know, take advantage of what falls out of the sky for years and years and years. We always use the excuse. I think it was. Uh, uh, more laziness than anything else that oh we don't get enough water it's too expensive to not make it worthwhile but you know what that that excuse is long gone and 
you know, we weren't in tier one or tier two facing tier two shortages on our river systems. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, I'll tell you what's going to be real expensive when they're not pumping any water down that canal. You want to talk about expensive water, then you're going to wish you'd spend a few bucks on some rainwater harvesting. Yeah. Amen to that. And uh, go ahead, Brad. So I just want to jump on that real quick. So here's a, here's the thing. Um, here in Tucson, we we spend huge amounts of money pumping water from the Colorado River to Tucson through a 300-mile canal and an elevation rise of 3,000 feet, okay? Um, and uh, that canal is the single largest consumer of electricity in the state of Arizona because water is so heavy to pump. Really? And, yeah, yeah, and it's the single largest emitter of carbon in the state of Arizona because the amount of fossil fuels we have to burn to run the pumps. So... Um, the uh, but yet okay let's flip it let's flip it to some positive feel good stuff more rain falls on the surface area of the city of tucson than its entire population consumes of municipal water in a typical year okay so more rain falls on the city of tucson in a year than all its citizens consume of municipal water in a year wow. but so we we have plenty of water the, the problem is that we are mismanaging the water we already freely have at hand. So, uh, you know, when, when it rains, people are thinking, oh, everything's good. The drought's over. No, no, no. Typically not. So I did a little experiment last year where um, so in 2020 was the driest year on record. Yep. OK. Uh, and um, we got two good storms in one week uh, and um, in the, uh, the summer of 2021. And we're like, is the drought over? So what I quickly did is I dug a little two inch depression, um, just on level ground that had been receiving all this rain. And then I, I dug within a street side water harvesting basin. Okay. So where I dug just on the level ground, you know, that's just receiving rainfall from the sky. Um, I dug two inches down and then it was bone dry despite the fact that we had gotten almost two inches of rain, okay? Then I dug in the street side water harvesting basin. I dug two feet, not two inches, two feet. And the soil was totally saturated with water. Um, And uh, I mean, I could have kept going, but I just got tired of digging. Um, (laughs) And so here's the key is um, if if we really want to make the most of what we already freely have at hand, we, we have to consciously manage it and work with it. So by planting the rain in these basins that um, um, are of high enough capacity that can grab a lot of that water and then quickly infiltrate it, um, had we not gotten any more rain that summer, all the plants in that basin would have been set, no problem, because we had increased the amount of available rain by well over 10 times by the way we manage that water with the planting of the rain. Whereas the bulk of Tucson was like that little two inch divot, you know, on just level soil, um, which didn't infiltrate anything. So um, this is the, this is part of the shift that I think we really need to make. And that we found in our life and our neighborhood works great. Well, you have a, you have a little saying and I would still want to get to uh, tanks or no tanks, but you have a little saying about sinking it, spreading it. Yeah. So we, um, we don't want to drain the rain. We want to retain the rain. So uh, I like to slow it down, spread it out and infiltrate it or said another way, slow it, spread it and sink it. Okay. So um, 
yeah, instead of draining the rain, retain it. And so the, the easiest way to do this, I think, is to plant the rain. So to create a topography full of bowl-like shapes that welcome that rain and then spongy soil that quickly infiltrates it and then living pumps that turn it into fruition. Nice. Well, and that goes to the tank part. I am not a huge fan of tanks in most cases because they cost so much money. And what I encourage people to do in Phoenix is to plant the rain first. So what you're actually doing is you're planting, getting the rain into the landscape, planting it, and then planting around it. Yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, same, I'm with you on that. I'll just elaborate. So um, tanks are expensive, um, but they can also be great, okay? So I both plant the rain and I have tanks. Mm -hmm. But the way I go about it is I first plant the rain, create these water harvesting earthworks, these water harvesting basins, um, so that I can reduce the need for uh, such a big tank. And thus I can shrink the size of my tank and save money because I don't have to spend as much on such a large tank. So um, I first create these basin-like shapes in which I ideally plant low water use native multi-use vegetation. So I look to the ethnobotanical record, like how did all the peoples that have lived here over millennia Like, what are the native plants that they ate from, that they found medicine, that they found fragrance and all this stuff? So I hand select and, you know, in my books, I, you know, cherry pick all these plants. Um, And I choose those first because they're the easiest to succeed with. Now, I can also bring in some exotic plants. But if uh, if you're not a green thumb, you want to succeed. The natives are the easiest way to succeed with. Um, and, uh, so I'm, I'm using a plant that's already best adapted to our climate soils and wildlife. Here's an interesting thing. You plant a native mesquite tree, you're going to support over 60 native, uh, 60 different species of native pollinators, like butterflies, hummingbirds, and whatnot. You plant a non-native mesquite, you're only going to support 12 because the native life, wildlife has co-evolved with the blooming times, the pollen counts, the fruiting times of the natives. So the easiest way to make things better for everyone, you know, all life is plant a native, okay? Um, So I do that. Then uh, uh, let's say I plant a fruit tree, I plant an exotic. Well, it's gonna need more water than a native plant. So I'm gonna direct the gray water from my shower to that same rain garden basin that's next to that uh, fruiting exotic uh, tree. And um, that way, when it rains, I'm capturing the rain. And when there's no rain, I'm capturing the gray water. Then if I still don't quite have enough water, I can look to putting in a tank. Um, but I've, I've, uh, I've reduced the cost right off the get-go. And the other great thing is I'm going to need to send the overflow from that tank somewhere. So I've already got these earthworks, these rain gardens set up to which I can direct the overflow from the tank. So nothing's wasted, okay? And I ideally like to set up the overflow for my tanks to grow a like a, a native food-bearing shade tree that shades my tank and co- keeps the temperature of the water cooler in the tank, which gives me higher quality water in the tank. Mm. And why do I like that? Because I like to drink my rainwater. So <laughs> here's the crazy thing is I, um, I share this property with my brother. He and his family are in the larger house, so I'm in the smaller one. So off just 400 square feet, I'm able to harvest all the rainwater I need in an average year. Now, that did not work on our driest year on record, okay? I I did run out of some water then, but that's the only year I've ever run out of water. So right now, I am drinking rainwater known around the world as sweet water 
because it doesn't have the salts that our municipal water does, that our well water does. It literally tastes sweet when you compare it to well water or municipal water. Now, um, yeah, go for it. I don't track every single drop of rain that falls across the state of Arizona, <laughs> but I know uh, Tucson hasn't gotten any more rain than Wickenburg has in the last three months. I mean, how how old is this sweet water you're drinking? <laughs> <laughs> well, this uh, this is rainwater that I caught back in November. November, okay. Yeah, yeah. I've sized my tanks to my roof area so that I can make it through our long dry spell. And, uh, and, and I've got all the you know, simple calculations and stuff in my book that other people can do likewise. But, you know, here's the thing, too. If you're thinking like, well, that's old rainwater. <laughs> you know, think about the groundwater that we're typically drinking. Mm-hmm. So much of that groundwater can be hundreds, thousands of years old, depending on the aquifer from which you're pumping it. So uh, much like an aquifer, I store my rainwater in tanks that are light proof. So I don't have algae growing in there. I screen the water before it gets into the tank with uh, these screens, much like the soil would when the water's infiltrating through the soil to the aquifer. So I'm I'm mimicking the natural aquifer system in the design of my cistern systems. And, you know, I don't know enough about where the water's pumped and unpumped from our dams, but that brings up a great thought. Like, you know, as we're getting to the lower portions of these lakes, is this water that hasn't been pumped out in 30, 40, 50 years that have been sitting there? Uh, cause the top the you know, the, the runoff on the top yeah. is what we're using or, you know, I know a lot of the, uh, hydroelectric generation happens lower in the dam. So that is part of the release and a lot of the release comes lower, but still, you know, uh, well, we're getting much saltier water because yes. of those dams yep. because, um, the, the water's evaporating in these dry areas where we have the dams and the reservoirs mm-hmm. and the salts remain. So the, the salt uh, levels get more and more concentrated as more and more water evaporates out. You know, that, that's kidney stone water. Great thing about rainwater, <laughs> <laughs> there's no salt nice. in there, okay? No kidney stone issue. Flush the system. Yeah, there you go. Very fascinating. The things you, you know, never would have thought of before had, had we not had this conversation or <laughs> um, and I really like the point you said earlier. No one ever, you know, we t- always talk about the benefits of native trees for water consumption, but I've never heard anyone drive home the point that, you know, you're supporting 60 native species versus 20 native species and oh, yeah. just how it improves the whole ecological system. And, and let me entice you further. Please. Okay, now I know you've got listeners all across the state. Okay, so uh, I'm in the southern part of the state where we got a lot of mesquite trees and whatnot, and you got those in, in uh, the Prescott area too. But for those folks up in Flagstaff, well, you got the oaks, or the acorns, you got the pinion nuts and whatnot. So you look to the to the ethnobotanical record of where you're living, and um, what were the staple foods, the delicious foods that people would harvest. So, um, you know, down where I am, mesquite's one of my favorites because it's like a native carob tree and it has naturally sweet pods. However, every tree tastes different. And it's the same thing with cactus fruit. Every plant's got its own flavor characteristic. So I taste, you know, one or two before I pick more. And if it's good, I keep picking. If it's bad, I spit it out and I go to another tree. And, and I mark those trees because they're going to be good year after year. They maintain that flavor. Um, and, you know, this is known amongst the, the indigenous cultures. So many of the, the Apache families, they have oak trees they go back to year after year, the ones that have the tasty acorns. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, yeah, so I, I, I encourage you all to experiment and bring in some native foods to your diet. You'll love it. There was a guy well, named Yule wanna... Gibbons. Does that oh, ring a bell? Oh, oh yeah. Ever eat a yeah. tree, ever drink a river? That kind of Stock thing. the wild asparagus. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I do want to, I do want to bring up next Saturday, we have our annual mesquite bean milling event here in, nice. uh, in Phoenix, uh, that's run through the urban farm and, um, Don Titmus at, uh, uh, B Oasis. So, We'll, we'll let you expand on that a little bit on the back side of the break in our final segment here in our Urban Farming Hour with Farmer Greg and Brad Lancaster. All right, as we were going to the break there, we were just getting ready to mention all the details. If you'd like to harvest your uh, mesquite pods and how to do that, you can do it at the Urban Farm next weekend. Farmer Greg, if somebody wanted to participate, how do they, how do, they do this? Well, you're going to get have to get out and harvest beans today or tomorrow. Uh, but where you find out more is urbanfarm.org forward slash mesquite. And there's a whole bunch of information, classes, um, and all the information you need to know to get your mesquite beans harvested. Because they make great pancakes. They, you can substitute it as your traditional flour. It's like you have said, it's, it's a local abundance that we're not utilizing. And if you got any listeners down uh, by the border... Um, in Patagonia and Ogallis area, um, check out Borderlands uh, Restoration Network. Um, mm-hmm. They've got a bunch of mesquite harvesting and milling events coming up too. So, Brad, you wrote a book, and then you wrote another book. Yeah, tell, tell me about your books, because uh, as far as I'm concerned, with the work that I've done for the past 30 years looking at this, these are the bibles of rainwater harvesting. So, tell us how they happened and where people can find out more. Yep. So the title of the books are Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond. Okay. Because it works in drylands and also in wet climates. Works in both. The only thing that changes between the wet and the dry climates is the plant palette you use. Mm. But all the basic approach, it works in wet and dry climates both. Uh, I came out with all new full color editions of these books, dramatically revised and expanded them. Um, folks can buy these direct from me at deep discount. Via my website, harvestingrainwater.com. And uh, not only can you get the books at deep discount at my website, um, but I also have extensive videos, uh, audio image galleries, and and how-to guides, like how to cut your own street curb um, to direct street runoff into your street side basins. Is it legal in Phoenix? Yes, it is. So you you got to get a permit, um, but it's legal, okay? Here's the other thing, okay? If you're in a community where you're getting some pushback on the legality of stuff, start with the easy peasy, okay? So you're, where you already have a dip in the curb, say a drive a dip for a driveway or something, just pull your basin to the existing drop or dip in the curb, okay? Prove the concept, move forward. Nice. Um, and uh, so again, check out harvestingrainwater.com for more information on all that. And uh, I also have another website. Hold, on. Hold yeah. on before we go past that. You have two books, yeah. volume one and volume two. Yes. Um, in one minute or less, what's the difference? Okay, the first one, that's the intro book. That's the one you want to see what's possible. Okay, how do you figure out the, the potential of your site? Like how much water's falling off your roof, street, whatnot? And where do you want to direct that water for maximum beneficial effect? And, uh, and where might you want to direct your gray water similarly? Okay, so it, it enables you to create your own plan, real integrated site with maximum benefit. 
The second book is step-by-step, how do you implement these various mm-hmm. rain garden strategies? Okay, nice. so it's it's the more detailed implementation book. It also has a whole chapter on gray water harvesting, has an appendix on dark gray water harvesting. That'd be the water from your kitchen sink. It's got a little more organic matter, so it's darker, oh, um, yes. <laughs> more, more fertile though. Uh, yeah. And uh, I also have a lot of information on how we help change codes uh, and incentivized uh, programs uh, in Tucson and other communities. And nice. the books are chock full of stories of case studies of people doing this all around the world, inspire you and show you you can do likewise. And I really uh, encourage you to go to rainwater harvesting, sorry, going to harvestingrainwater.com to buy them. Yes. And if you're interested in some of the community work we've done with the neighborhoods, yes. okay, so like how have we helped transform our neighborhood from one of barren solar oven-like streets to um, streets that are now harvesting over a million gallons of runoff per month, um, per year, okay? So uh, go to neighborhoodforesters.org, okay? And you'll see how we run our programs, our pl- rain and native food forestry planting programs. So you can do likewise. You can set up a neighborhood forestry group in your neighborhood. We, we, that's how we've set it all up. We're, we're very open with our, how we do things and hopes that people take it, run with it and evolve it further. So that's neighborhoodforesters.org. You can also check out my YouTube channel. Just search, you know, Brad Lancaster on uh, YouTube and you can find me on other social media like TikTok and Instagram, Facebook, all that stuff. Just oh my gosh. me out. You TikTok, huh? I'm TikTok, man. Rocking all that stuff. <laughs> you know, you had a stat during the break about the amount of gray water that's harvested oh, yes. in the municipalities. I wanted you to recap that before we wrapped up. Yeah, sometimes when people, they, they hear about the idea of, of gray water harvesting, taking the water from your drain of your shower sinks or laundry, and they think maybe it's not that much. Well, actually, the average uh, single-family household, the amount of gray water going down their drain to the sewer or the septic, if they redirected that to the landscape, that would be enough water to meet the majority of their landscape irrigation needs. Okay, so there's huge potential there. So, you know, stop draining your rainwater. Stop draining your gray water. Okay, start retaining that. Let's get out of the drain age and get, let's get into the retain age. Okay, <laughs> and because, uh, you know, we need lusher landscapes, you know, because uh, th- this is l- the life cake, man. Our lives are at stake. We got to set these landscapes up in a way that enhances the health for us, everyone, the watershed and the future. And by planting the rain, well, that's the first step. Brad Lancaster, been an absolute pleasure. Author of Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond. And Farmer Greg, can't thank you enough for arranging that interview. Urbanfarm.org if you would like to get more of Greg's. And sign up for the Mesquite Milling next Saturday. Yeah, yeah. I have one more thing real quick. Our Water Harvesting Summit is coming up in mid-July. It's a free three-day event. If you go to waterharvestingsummit.com. Um, you can uh, sign up and learn more. 